We're on. Here we go. Science on the side. Welcome. <laughs> it's been a while. It has been a while. Um, what are we talking about today? Uh, we're going to talk about PCR today. PCR. PCR is in the news a lot lately. It seems to be everybody's talking about a PCR test. It, yeah. What what context do we talk about uh, PCR in? I mean, I think the pandemic, you know, COVID-19 has really brought PCR onto the, the national consciousness. It really has. It's really kind of changed revolution. I, we're going to talk a little bit about the history today. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just kind of revolutionized science today, I feel like. Yeah. As we've done this podcast, most of the stories that we fall on are people who ended up winning Nobel Prizes. And it's because those discoveries are so integral to what we do now. Totally. Totally. You don't find a lab in the health sciences that doesn't do PCR. Yeah. Everyone does PCR. Mm-hmm. For all any, the, for all anything. the time. Yep. It doesn't matter what model organism you're working on. Flies, worms, mice. Humans. Humans. Uh, you will do a PCR, even if it's just for maintenance or other things yep. um, to maintain your animal colonies, to make sure you're actually looking at the right genotype of mouse or fly or worm, you're going to do a PCR test. Yep. We do them in basic labs and then you get translational labs. Um, so these are medical testing labs. Um, that's what PCR for COVID is. It's to test to see if people have COVID. Uh, you use them to look for uh, genetic diseases. When I was in a genetic sequencing lab, I did PCR all the time. I mean, it's, botany labs use it. Oh yeah. Uh, it's Anything in biology. Anything in- I mean, PCR is really a way to, you know, in the most simplest of terms, amplify DNA. And every living organism on the planet, from bacteria to plants to humans, has DNA. And where there's DNA, doesn't matter what kind, we can amplify it. Yep. Right? What should we start with? What does PCR stand for? PCR is polymerase chain reaction. And where does polymerase come from? So polymerase, uh, I mean, if you take the, like, root word of that polymer, that's making, like, a long string, a long thing, right? Multiple add, units of multiple something, Multiple units right? added on to each other. Like, Plastics are polymers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nylon is a polymer. So polymerase is actually an enzyme. So it's a protein in our bodies that carries out a function. And that function is to polymerize or make long chains of DNA. Right. So, or RNA. Or RNA. Yep. Uh, nu- nucleic, nucleic acids. acids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So polymerase chain reaction is the basically the method of making more DNA. And I think for our non-science listeners, it's maybe important to talk about A, why this would be necessary, and B, kind of a little example, if you'll humor me for a minute. Sure. So uh, first of all, why would this be important? Why would you want to... Um, amplify or um, make more DNA? Well, one really important reason is because when you're studying DNA, and there are endless applications for studying DNA, you need a lot of material. And you don't always get a lot of the material you're interested in from a sample. So being able to amplify specific DNA that you're interested in or specific RNA that you're interested in 
in order to study it could be really useful and important. And um, up until the discovery of PCR in the 80s, this was really a holdup for science. Um, and I think that kind of the classic example that that people use to describe PCR is that it's like a copy machine. So um, I like to think about it like if you had a book, okay, and you wanted to copy a specific page of, out of a book, you can put it on a copy machine and make a copy. What's really cool about PCR is then at that point, now you have those two copies, you can make simultaneously a copy of each of those in the next round and you have four copies and on and on. So this is exponential expansion of a very specific part of DNA. So um, to kind of carry this out just a little bit further, if you're thinking about testing for COVID, because that's something that people understand right now, you go through a drive through test, they take a nose swab or a spit swab, they send it to a lab. I think of this as like, what they're doing is they're taking a pile of books, okay? So your, your spit sample is going to have your own DNA in it, okay? It's going to have DNA from the millions of bacteria that live in your mouth or your nose that are just naturally there. If you have COVID, it's going to have coronavirus in it. It's going to have just... Any other types of viruses, any too. Any other virus, any other bacteria. It's all... Any organism that has DNA or RNA is going to be present. So the, it gets sent off to this lab, and what they want to do is test for purely the presence of coronavirus. And coronavirus has a different genome than you or I have. It has a different genome than other viruses and other bacteria. And if they can basically just amplify a region that is unique in coronavirus, that will verify that that person is infected with coronavirus. So there will either be presence or absence of this uh, amplified region. So what you need for PCR is they're called primers and they're going to basically lock into a specific part of an organism's DNA and amplify that. So this would be like if you're searching in a, a Word document for millions of pages of different books and you're looking for a specific sentence and that specific sentence is only going to fall in one book, right? And then you want that whole page copy. That should not line up with any other page in any other book. Those are unique to that page in that book. You're going to be able to make the copies of that page over and over and over again. And then you know that book is there. Same idea with coronavirus. If you can amplify a specific region of coronavirus that's unique to it, uh, make lots and lots of copies, you see that it's present, you can detect it, that person has a, a COVID infection. That's kind of the idea. Right, right. And um, maybe just to add into that, there's a template. So these primers are essentially binding to a single strand piece of DNA that becomes separated due to heat, right? So we heat the reaction up, DNA unwinds and falls apart, and now you have these two single strands, and these primers will sit down on either ends and then can dictate the correct position of nucleotides to make the copies you were talking about. Right, you know? yeah. 
Yep. So that's another really important aspect of PCR is that DNA is double-stranded. To be able to make additional DNA, you need some things. You need primers, like we mentioned. You need more building blocks, right? So you need more nucleotides, which are the letters that add on um, and will be unique to the strand that you're looking at. And then, yeah, you need heat to be able to separate out the, the strands from each other um, because DNA that's double-stranded is very stable at normal temperatures. Otherwise, we'd all <laughs> fall be dead. Apart, right? <laughs> we'd all fall apart, yeah. So that's the idea behind PCR. Like we said, we do this all the time in the lab. All the time. In fact, so much so to the point that I would say scientists now probably don't understand PCR to the level and depth that probably some of the early molecular biologists did. I mean, we just take it for granted. The reagents, I mean, there's online calculators for you to figure out the right annealing temperatures. There's, I mean, everything is laid out for you. A monkey could do it, yep. literally, right? Um, but I think really understanding the process, and I know sometimes I've heard in preliminary exams, which is the, you know, some would say the hardest part of the PhD, I would disagree, but... Um, you know, you're asked to draw out PCR. You know, it's one of these things where it's like, okay, describe this very basic molecular biology concept, you know. Um, I could do it. You could do it. I could do it. I wouldn't. I think most early graduate students can do it, but I feel like it's so taken for granted yeah. now. It's not but trivial. now it's, it's just, I, I'll set up a reaction in 10 minutes. I'll throw it on the machine, come back in an hour and a half. And, and that's done. that, you know? Yep, 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 yep. So. Totally. Well, I think uh, we're, we brought up temperature. Maybe that's a good place to kind of delve into. Do we want to talk about uh, the enzyme that allows for PCR to be so efficient? Yeah, I think this is fascinating. So this will kind of lead into the first of two people that we're going to talk about today. So Thomas Brock is the person who discovered what we use in every PCR reaction. I shouldn't say every. Our lab uses it in every PCR reaction, but there are others. There are other enzymes, uh -huh. right? But you have to, for these reactions to occur, you have to um, heat up your samples really hot, and then they'll cool back down as the um, polymerase is making new strands of DNA. But when you heat up the DNA, it kills the enzyme. Right. So it's, it, it works because it unwinds your DNA and makes it unravel. That's great. But normal enzymes can't withstand 95 degrees Celsius temperatures. Right. That's almost boiling temperature. So yeah. that's, I mean, you're not jumping in as a human. <laughs> yeah. You're not jumping in a pot of boiling water. You're, I mean, let alone you get third degree burns, you're going to boil the enzymes that carry out right. important They'll completely denature them and they won't work, yep. right? Which was some of the earliest problems with PCR. Yep. Right? Yep. Okay. So in the early days of PCR, when they had figured this method out, but they hadn't figured they, out the issues with heat, um, a scientist would have to stand there and dip their sample into a heat bath, heat it up, dip it in another water bath, cool it down, and then each round, so each time they were making additional copies of their DNA, which could be like 30 rounds of doing this and could take them like four or five hours, 
um, they would have to add in fresh um, enzyme, enzyme, fresh polymerase to be able to do the next round. And it was extremely expensive and it took a crazy amount of time. I can't imagine a PCR taking me five hours out of my day. That oh, I just and to having to sit there. there and babysit it the whole yes. time. Yeah. Could you imagine? No, it sounds horrible. Ugh. But Thomas Brock, who was a botanist and mycologist, who a mycologist studies fungus, had discovered a, a bacteria that was heat stable. And this is a pretty cool story because he kind of just stumbled upon it in the 60s. Like all good discoveries. All good discoveries take a little bit of LSD and a little bit of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Although that will come into play later. Yeah, yeah. No, he yeah discovered a heat-stable bacteria. And part of why it was heat-stable is because it had a polymerase um, that could amplify its own DNA... Um, replicate its own DNA at high temperatures. This was discovered before PCR was discovered. Uh, it was back in the 60s, right? It was late 60s, yeah. This guy, I think, is a bit of an interesting character. He's not like way too far out there for scientists, but when he was a teenager, um, his dad had passed away. His mom was a nurse, but when his dad passed away, they were kind of in poverty. And so they moved out to the boonies and they lived on a farm. And during that time, he built a chemistry lab in the loft of his barn. And he wow. just made explosions, made stuff blow up. That was like his introduction to science because he thought it was cool. Yeah. And I don't know. I just, I love these stories of older scientists that like, it was just ingrained in them. They just liked to blow stuff up and see what happened. And yeah, well, or they like to work with their hands. I think there are a lot of people that are curious about how things work and that work with their hands and that are like, oh, I could never do science. I couldn't I couldn't do what you do. And it's like, yes, you could. If you, yeah. I mean, you could. Yeah. It's not like you could just step into it any day and all of a sudden be a good scientist. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But uh all it takes to be a good scientist is to have curiosity and be willing to dedicate Learn. a crap ton of time to studying and learning. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably get turned off based on some of the didactic coursework almost. Absolutely. Right? You don't want to become, you don't want to major in biology or chemistry because you have to take differential equations or linear algebra. I know that was me for a certain while. <laughs> I was like, I am not doing this. <laughs> you know, It was physics for me, man. Right? Ugh. Like, uh, but there's a whole, and I think you really don't see this until you become a graduate student, but there's a whole other level of science where it's kind of like, yeah, there's these things you got to know, but like, there's also this element of you being able to kind of do things on the bench. Okay. I digress. Um, <laughs> where were we? Where were we? I talking, don't even know. Working on our hand, working, talking about working with our hands. Yeah. Oh yes. Thomas Brock. Thomas he Brock. He uh, had this little chemistry lab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he liked to tinker. Made, yep. He became a, you know, a, a microbiologist. And, you know, in fairness, he didn't discover the enzyme per se. He discovered the bacteria. Yeah. So right? Because that was his passion. Yeah. Well, kind of tangentially, right? He, he was kind of a botanist and kind of um, into fungal species and um, not really even... 
a bacterial specialist by any means. But No, but a microbiologist and a fungal biologist before the advent of genomics yeah. was really about phenotypes and environment, right? Right, right. Yeah, so he was the professor at the time and was driving through Yellowstone area, decided to stop because he had never seen Yellowstone before. And at this time, there was a lot of um, curiosity about things that could live at very hot temperatures. Sure. But real quick, yeah. where, what's Yellowstone? Just for anybody who might be listening that's not from the States. Oh, yeah. Yellowstone National Park. National Park in the United States, uh, northern, northwestern United States. Um, it is on location of like a... I'm not going to get the term right, but like mega volcano or super volcano or something, super volcano that's basically supposed to blow a third of the earth to smithereens at some (laughs) point in in the distant future. Yeah, yeah. Um, We'll be dead long before that happens, hopefully. But if not, then we'll be dead once it happens. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's supposed to, I mean, the crater would be all the way down here to Salt Lake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just. And so it's Yellowstone is on the border between Idaho and Wyoming uh-huh. on Idaho's eastern edge. There's a lot of um, activity, heat, and water in that area. So geysers, geysers yeah. hot pots, um, lots of just like hot water um, pockets that are there. It's really cool. Have you been? I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have Super too. cool. So he's driving through. He sees all this cool stuff. He's interested in microorganisms. There's something in the ether of the time about are there organisms that can live at extreme temperatures, right, or pH levels? Yeah, because obviously animals can't. We don't have animals living in any of these hot water deposits. But you can visibly see, like if you look up pictures of Yellowstone, you can see these incredible colors. There's bright yellows and oranges and and deep like aquamarine blues and a lot of these are caused by algae that live within these geysers and hot springs and he decided you know what those are super cool i wonder what makes them be able to live at these hot temperatures so he took a sample and when he took a sample of the algae uh, unbeknownst to him he also grabbed a sample of bacteria that he later named thermus aquaticus or the T and from thermos and the AQ from aquaticus has been shortened to TAC. Mm. And that's a very famous term now. Um, that's the polymerase we use is TAC polymerase. So he discovered that there were heat-stable bacteria that could live at temperatures, um, ideally about 75 degrees uh, Celsius, but up to about 95 degrees Celsius, which is um, just below boiling temperature. What I would like to know, and maybe did you come across this? It's great that like we found this enzyme in, in Thermus aquaticus, right? They can survive these temperatures. But how does Thermus aquaticus keep its DNA together? I don't know. Why isn't it always single-stranded? Because it's always living at temperature. I mean, is it a single-stranded? No. I don't no, know. No, I mean, a bacterial is just one genome, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and it might be very reduced in that type of environment. There's probably multiple organisms living there that might be kind of in an endosymbiont type of situation where you get reduced genome size and there's kind of a sharing of nutrients going on, right? Um, but I'm just kind of wondering how just the thermodynamics. Oh, it yeah, yeah, how does it not no, fall apart? I don't know. Okay. We Good can question. Look we can look that up later. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, yeah. so, so he discovers late this bug. 60s, he discovers Thermus aquaticus, names it, 
Um, and then that discovery just sits around for a while um, until it is needed. And I think that that's pretty cool because we'll talk now or coming up about PCR and its discovery and the guy who discovered it. But PCR, as we know it today, really wouldn't be possible without this first discovery. And I think sometimes people question basic research and its usefulness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm not ever in my PhD going to do something that's going to save someone's life. Right. At least not in the time that I'm here or with the actual research I'm doing. But the hope is that the discoveries that I make, the discoveries that you make, the things that are done in in basic research labs every day will lay the groundwork one day for those discoveries that will be crucial to human health um, or furthering science in general. That's kind of the idea. So that's that's certainly what happened here. Well, totally true. And I think this coronavirus pandemic is a huge example of how important basic research is because we didn't just identify this, but this virus sequence its genome, figure out like how to detect it and create a vaccine all in a year. This is years and years and years of basic research scientists sequencing this genome, figuring out what's interesting about this bug, identifying the M spike protein. This was all known beforehand. You know what I mean? So I just think it's, you know, as you were saying, I think these this basic discovery element is really important for oh, yeah. downstream applications that we don't know yet. Yeah. Carrie Mullis is the next man that we want to talk about. Yeah. And yeah. Carrie Mullis was a character. Yeah. He sounds like he was an interesting dude. This guy in a biochem lab as a PhD student published a paper in Nature, which is like the highest journal out there for scientists about like astrophysics. What? Yeah. He, in 1968, he had a sole author publication in Nature in the field of astrophysics. And that's pretty much, I mean, it was like a theoretical paper that he came up with while he was tripping. Probably tripping. I think so, yeah. I mean, I think he he was pretty open about it. I don't think he was hiding that. (laughs) Um, It was the 60s. Right? (laughs) And... Um, I guess he struggled through his, like, dissertation and thesis defense, and um, they basically just let him graduate with his Ph.D. because he had a nature paper. He was, like I said, he was very up and down. Back when he graduated from his Ph.D., he quit for, he quit science for a few years. He became a fiction writer. I wonder if he ever published anything. And if he did, it's probably weird. Probably. Um, (laughs) And then... When that kind of fizzled, he ran a bakery for two years before someone talked him into coming back to science. Mm. And that being said, he was known to be like a brilliant chemist. Like he was very good at what he did. He Mm -hmm. just was kind of all over the place. Yeah. You know, some reports that he was a little hard to work with, maybe. Um, And there's a lot of lore around Kerry Mullis and his discovery of polymerase chain reaction. I mean, as the story goes, he was driving home from the the Redwood Forests with a girlfriend or something. Yeah. And um, basically envisioned the PCR reaction. And I think there was a quote that you read from his book. And, you know, who knows how it all went down. But he does talk about 
psychedelics really kind of allowing him to walk along the DNA strands and see how the nucleotides fit with one another. And uh, I think that's a pretty, I don't know, a visual example of how a psychedelic might like really bring you into a situation to allow you to understand <laughs> it more, you know? Yeah. So he, like you said, he was driving either to or from the Redwoods on a, on a little weekend getaway. His girlfriend was in the car she was asleep. He pulled over because his brain just started like putting all these pieces together. And he was thinking about. He was tripping balls. He, he might have been <laughs> tripping on acid a little bit. <laughs> That's why he pulled over. He was, he tripping. was like, I can't, he couldn't can't drive follow anymore. these lines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he he pulled over to think about mathematically how. This could work. And he thought about using a polymerase and primers to amplify not only a strand of DNA once, but to do it over and over and over and how this could allow you to just have as much material as you wanted. And that would really solve the problem that scientists had been having because, like we mentioned, they could research DNA and RNA, but... Um, the barriers to doing that were that you just needed so much material and they didn't have good ways of amplifying that DNA um, consistently and in a way that would give you enough. And he was so excited that he woke his girlfriend up to tell her and she, I think, was a scientist too. And she was like, yeah, whatever, and went back to sleep. And shortly after, when he went back to the lab, the next Monday, he just immediately started working on this and I guess that his girlfriend had broken up with him over the weekend. And when he, like, came up with, like, he made it work for the first time, he was like, I didn't get to enjoy it like I should have because the love of my life dumped me. Oh, what a bummer. <laughs> so his Nobel Prize winning discovery, like, the first time he ever actually successfully did PCR was overshadowed by his girlfriend dumping him. You know, and this was really uh, received with a lot of criticism and, and skeptic, skeptic, skepticism. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, think so. Not, I don't think that people didn't believe that it could work theoretically because ideas had been there for a while, but that they were very skeptical that he could actually truly carry out what he kind of thought about and envisioned. Yeah, I mean, the way that it's told, science rejected him outright. They didn't believe his papers. And one of the criticisms he got at these meetings that he would present this research at is that it's too easy. It's too simple. If it were this simple, somebody else would have discovered it and not you, yep. right? Yep. And I think that's what really kind of people didn't irked like. People. It irked people, yeah. That he it, can... it almost challenged their intelligence. Yep, yep. exactly. It and... was a big ego stroke, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. how did you figure this out? Because it's so easy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, apparently, some conferences that he went to led to some screaming matches so people were passionate and that he could not do this or, or had not done this. Um, and it's, it'd be really interesting to kind of go back and see what that argument was, like what was the data and what were these people disputing so much. But this was mid-80s. People are, you know, really giving him a hard time. Mid-80s. And he works at CETUS at the time, so this is a I think he's a professor at the same time too, isn't he? I, or is he only working at CETUS now? I think he just now? works at CETUS okay. at this point. Okay. Yeah. 
um, you know, so mid eighties, but then by late eighties, I think companies like new England labs have effectively cloned TAC polymerase mm -hmm. and really streamlined the PCR reaction using his technology conceptually. Mm -hmm. And then the advent of the thermocycler. Yeah. So those are all really important things. So in, in 85, when he, um, like discovered this, came up with it. It took a ton of tinkering, yep. um, getting the right temperatures, um, the right amount of time. The to, right salt concentrations, right. magnesium concentrations, all that stuff he had to work out. The amount of right, all of the stuff we take for granted. Oh yeah, right. The primers, getting primers like oh. in the right spot. How do we get primers, Morgan? <laughs> uh, well, I usually will find primers that are. Um, Published in another paper or publicly uh -huh. available, but no. But like, how do we actually yeah, get them? Yeah, no, no. I'm getting there. So, okay. so I I uh, go to this website. <laughs> I put in the sequence that I want. I hit order, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then magically they show up the next day. Yeah, from New Jersey. Yeah, on my bench. It's magic. It is magic. Yeah, it's magic. He there was no internet. <laughs> okay, let's not forget that. Let alone ordering the damn things. Okay, there was no internet. He just he had to synthesize his own oligonucleotides. Okay, not only that, the human genome was not oh, sequenced at that what? point. The human genome, honey, how no. Do you, how do you know what sequence to make your primers if you don't have? Yeah, what are you looking at? How do you know what are you doing? Human genome publicly available on the internet. I mean, it's bonkers. Oh it's my bonkers. gosh. Now that should be said. Sanger sequencing was around. Right, it took forever and it was expensive, but Sanger sequencing was around since the seventies, so they could sequence they things. They could sequence things, right? but that's what I'm saying is like they didn't just have the human genome or you know the genomes the internet. of whatever organisms they were interested in that they could just like type in and find the yeah. the sequences that they wanted. Yeah, yeah, bonkers, <sighs> man. That was a hard I, life, dude. I don't know. That's why I mean we're spoiled. We order things and they appear magically, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. You look back at these old papers and they cite like 10 papers. And I'm like, that was probably a lot of work. You had to go down to the library. You had to order it. It had to be physically mailed from another university. It'd probably take months, right? Because some poor SOB is in the basement at Harvard making copies of things and then mailing them to you. You know what I mean? Like, it's amazing. And they have like one or two figures of data, right? Which probably took them years to generate. And right? they had to draw them there was no hand. Excel, right? You think they just popped it into Expel, let alone GraphPad or Prism? Yeah. Oh, man. So, Thermocycler. Thermocycler. That was, where, where that was, was where we going. went off the rails. Thermocycler. <laughs> a thermocycler is a really fancy instrument that at, at the most basic level gets hot and then it gets cold. Yeah. And that's it. And it does it on time. So it will get hot for X amount of time, however long you tell it. And then it will get cold. And then it will get medium hot, medium cold. And it will repeat these cycles over and over and over again for your polymerase chain reaction to occur. Yep. That's that's, that's basically it. all it is. So now It's a fancy yeah, oven yeah, and refrigerator in one. Yep. <laughs> you don't have to sit there and dip your sample into a hot bath, a cold bath, a warm bath over and over and over again for five hours, you can set up your reaction, get it ready to go in a little tube. Program the machine. Program the machine to the settings that you want for heat and cool and the number of cycles you want to do and everything like that. You pop it on the machine. I mean, I don't know. 
I think it's hard to understand what actually happens in a science lab unless you actually see sure, it. Sure, sure. But it takes like an hour and a half. You can't see any changes. Your sample looks exactly the same. It's a clear liquid in a little tube. Yep. And But now you have made this new product and you didn't have to stand there for four hours doing it yourself. That's, this machine did it for you. That's wild that they used to do that. Yes. That's so wild. Yeah. That would be your whole day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just maybe another quick tangent on that is um, some of the early pioneering work of PCR and quantitative PCR actually occurred here at the University of Utah. Really? I know Carl Witwer was um, the technology. He was trying to develop very rapid PCRs hmm. um, because even when the thermocycler came around and even for some standard PCR reactions, they'll take an hour or two. Yeah. And I have one that takes two hours and I hate the that one. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but he was really trying to do like pathogen identification within 15, 20 minutes. So he oh, wow. actually developed some 10 minute and 15 minute PCRs where they were literally like doing the transfer back and forth themselves just really quick for 10 minutes and they were being able to show amplification. Mm -hmm. um, and this, to my knowledge, is really what spawned Idaho Technologies, which was an old biotech company over here in Research Park, which was oh, then known or was bought or became BioFire. Oh, right. BioFire is one of the biotech companies. Right. Here. And then BioFire was just recently purchased by a French company. Was it? It was. Yeah. Oh. I forget the name. It starts with an M and I probably couldn't pronounce it in French anyway. But BioFire's whole shtick is rapid yeah. pathogen detection. Yep. Right. Being able to detect if somebody has a bug within a half an hour, mm -hmm. you know, whereas if you send something like that off to a reference laboratory, you'll get a result maybe the next day, yeah. maybe a couple of days. Yeah. So there's just a little connection to Utah there. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, back to PCR and Mollus. We are all over the place. Today. That's OK. People <laughs> enjoy it. Um, once it was kind of worked out, the kinks were worked out. Um, they were starting to do this regularly and recognizing its value. Uh, the company he worked for, Cetus, gave him a $10,000 bonus. Said, thank you so much. This is awesome. Great discovery, right? <laughs> Turn around and sold the technology to Roche, which is a huge biotech company, for $300 million. And that really... $300 million in 1989. Right. That, I mean, that really irked uh, Mollis. And he severed. Did he not get a part of that, of no, any of that? No, the $10,000 bonus was what he got before they ever sold it. And oh, it was no longer his. God, it I wasn't his. sued them to ashes for yeah, that. Yeah. So he was, I mean, he got a Nobel he Prize. He got a Nobel Prize. He, was, he got the glory. He got the glory. You know, there were a lot of talks of other people that contributed to these ideas that he worked with. Um, he was not the sole um, receiver of the 1993 Nobel Prize. That's right. Uh, there was one other, but that other one was for a different concept in uh, genetic technology, site-directed mutagenesis. So he was the sole receiver for the discovery of PCR. He did yeah. not share that discovery with anyone else. And he got the Japan Award in the same year. And um, he kind of went off the rails a little A little bit. A little, little bit. Too much Too much LSD. Well, we don't know that. But, um, you know, he, he, <laughs> he, he, he had some... I don't know all of his crackpot theories. I think he was... He had two pretty famous ones. Was one of them, like, that the government created HIV? 
yes, that, uh-huh. that HIV didn't actually cause AIDS um, and that, Interesting. that it wasn't really real and that the government made it. Okay. Um, the other one was that there was no hole in the ozone. Um, mm. And he wrote a, an autobiography mm. about himself called Dancing Naked in the Mind, Mind Field. And I need to give that one a read. Apparently he talks about like... Um, times that he saw like radioactive squirrels in the redwood forests and how he like walked along dna with the polymers to figure out how they worked like he had some weird stuff is is i mean that's an i think that's a really catchy title it is it's a catchy title it's very intriguing do i want to read this and i'm kind of wondering (laughs) what what was he like what is the interpretation of that title? Walking naked in the minefield. And it's mind, right? Yeah. Not mine, as in like clay mines, right? So it's like walking naked with your walking dancing na- naked. Dank- dancing naked, right? So there's like this, you know, um, freedom or expressionist uh, type of interpretation to that and 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 whatever. And but you're in this the mind field, right? But it's a play on mind, so it's explosive. Right. Yeah. And it's something dangerous. It's something kind of explosive and you're completely exposed, but you're dancing. So you're kind of free and, and, and enjoying. I don't know. And it it's, seems like a place other people wouldn't go. Right. He went. He beyond went. A, yeah. A place he went beyond. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think he saw himself as that person, too. I think he wasn't constrained by his fear of what other people thought of him. Um, he. <laughs> He didn't care that he was on and off drugs, that he went between careers, that he jumped in and out of science. Like a lot of academics will tell you, like, if you're not in academia, you're not a real scientist. Yep. Like that clearly didn't phase him. Yeah. Right. Yep. He's He was not that guy. So where was he working that, when he died? Uh, so he created his own company um, in immunology, actually, which I thought. That's right. was interesting. That's right. It, it's a really cool idea. I assume it never went anywhere because I've never heard of this until I was reading about it recently. But his idea was that um, you make antibodies all the time against um, like inert things when even when you're healthy. And that when you're infected with something like the flu or now COVID or whatever, you want quick immunity to it and you want that, um, I mean... You want long-term immunity, but short-term extra help wouldn't be bad. And so he was trying to make these adapters that could basically attach to any antibody that your body is already producing, and then on the other end could identify the um, pathogen that's infecting you and help you to have like more rapid immune responses. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean... I didn't read all the details, and like I said, we're in immunology, and this technology is not... That sounds weird to me. ...something that is, like, being pursued. It's not, like, on the forefront or anything, so I assume that it kind of didn't ever go anywhere. But he started that company, I think, in, like, 2005, 2006, something Mm. like that, and ran it for a few years. I I don't know what he was doing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought he also had an appointment at Oakland's Children's Hospital. 
I don't know. He. I thought he was a research professor there. Probably was. I mean, I think he went up and down on a lot of things. In yeah, fact. yeah. I, I should have looked it up, but I, I felt like in, I don't know, 2016, 2017, he kind of had a big paper come yeah, out of his lab. At, at the end of his career yeah. or his life, I guess. It had been like a long time since he had had any. Yeah, like, he hadn't done anything in like 20 or... years. Um, I don't, do you know, did you look up what it was? No, but I, I didn't, I but I think it was a bigger, that. it was a bigger paper yeah, but, for him. Um, he died in 2019. Uh, interesting guy. Uh, PCR is very useful. And it's everywhere. And it's everywhere. You it know? is. And, and, uh, so, I mean, you know, you have to, I think you, you know, it's a, it's an interesting lesson in kind of sticking to your principles. And, and believing in yourself and, and in your science. Because, you know, a lot of people told him he was full of crap yeah. when he did that, right? And and had he given that up, I'm sure somebody else would have eventually come across it. But would it have been another 10 years? Would we have not figured out the genome until right now? You know right. what I mean? I mean, his, be it his attitude or not, you know, maybe he was a jerk. That discovery has changed human civilization for the better. There's companies out there now and, and BioFire, I think, is one of them who are really trying to think about how they can take the smallest amount of blood and can they detect tumor antigens that are floating that are early. So this will allow for early detection and from like a single or a handful of tumor cells, right. which is like right. nothing. Right. Which could take 10 years to evolve into a full-blown tumor that you would start to see symptoms. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, this technology is only gaining more and more applications. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's changed the world. Yeah. In ways that most ordinary average Citizens people don't even never know. never appreciate. Yep. Don't even know. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. All Good right. stuff. Yeah. Should we wrap this up? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, I'm Morgan. And I'm Ty. And this is Science on the Side. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys. It's Morgan here. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks.